Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. Welcome into the Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast. It is Tuesday, September 14th. Michael Beller and Derek Van Riper here with you. Week one now fully behind us after that great Ravens Raiders game on Monday Night Football. We now turn our, fo- our focus to week two. DBR, how you doing today? Doing great. Looking forward to talking about some teams that really let us down in the fantasy community in week one. Yeah, we've got a theme here for Tuesdays, uh, both for the season long and for this Tuesday in particular. So every Tuesday we are going to visit with a handful of our athletic beat writers, talk with them, get the on-the-ground knowledge about what's going on with their respective teams. And indeed, DVR, the three teams that we have on today, all teams that let down fantasy managers in week one. We start with the Buffalo Bills and our Bills beat writer, Joe Buscalia. Joe, what's going on? Not too much, guys. Thanks for having me. And I know it's not under uh, good circumstances because probably a lot of uh, Bill's uh, fantasy owners were let down. But uh, but yeah, glad to be here either way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, that's a team that even going up against that strong front seven of Pittsburgh, we knew it was going to be a tough test right off the bat, but did not expect the efficiency and the explosiveness that we came to expect from this Bill's offense last year to be completely gone in this game. We're going to ask this question to all you guys who are on this show today. Was this a case of just one bad game against a very good defense in Buffalo's Buffalo's instance, or is there cause for real concern? And I think in Buffalo's, it's really cause for concern with that offensive line. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of both maybe here. I think the offensive line, first and foremost, was a major, major cause for concern. And it was one of those under the radar issues that you know, we were talking about leading up to the season, but everyone was so excited for the year. Like, oh, yeah, they've got, we're bringing everybody back and, and you know, they're just going to be great. They're going to roll over everybody. But lo and behold, it, the interior offensive line in particular was a bit of an issue. And it, and it showed with their left guard, John Feliciano, who was one of the uh, five worst pass blockers in the entire NFL in week one, according to PFF data. So that is a major issue in itself. And then you had the struggling play of the offensive tackles, Deion Dawkins who was hospitalized for four days due to COVID. Uh, He's their left tackle, and he's usually really good. He struggled a lot. Uh, Same thing with right tackle Darrell Williams against TJ Watt. So there is legitimate cause for concern. But I also think this was a bit of the Bills maybe overthinking it and not pivoting in, in the first week. We saw from offensive coordinator Brian Dable, he really leaned into four and five wide receiver personnel. Four receiver, I think he ran it 26 times. 
five receiver, he ran it nine times. The rest of the league combined, uh, they they ran five wide receiver once in week one. That, and that was before the, the Raiders and Ravens game. So and that was not working. You know, on those 35 plays or whatever it was, they were averaging a yards per attempt of under four. And that is just not going to get the job done. But once they were shifting to uh, 11 personnel in the second half, that's when they started to get things moving a little bit. And I would I would be uh, very surprised if they didn't get back more to that in uh, in week two against Miami. Uh, certainly using a lot more early down play action, which they really didn't use a lot of and was kind of a calling card for them in 2020. Um, so I, I would expect those things to change. So just put a pin in it for now. You know, some concerning things, but I think the Bills will get back uh, to, to what they were doing at least a little bit uh, against the Miami Dolphins next week. Joe, I think one of the big surprises of week one before the games even kicked off was the Bills' decision to make Zach Moss inactive. Devin Singletary had 11 carries for 72 yards, caught a few passes in this game as well. Uh, what do you make of that decision, and do you think Moss is kind of falling out of favor, or do you think that was just the decision made for the opener? I think it was the decision made for the one game. It was a decision I, I didn't understand the logic to because they, they dressed a backup tight end who wound up getting two offensive snaps and no special team snaps on the core four units. So I don't really know what they were thinking there. Um, but it did shift the way that they uh, approached certain short down situations. Like everyone saw that fourth and one where uh, Josh Allen threw back to Matt Breed and it got blown up for a, a seven yard loss. I mean, I think if Zach Moss was dressed for that game, they, they probably do things a little bit differently. So I would anticipate he uh, he gets to be active in, in the short term here. Um, I don't know what it's going to mean for the for the running back outlook, quite honestly, because the Bills kind of keep that in-house. You know, Singletary uh, doesn't really uh, – I mean, he looked good in spots, but it, between the tackles, he's not really that much of an, an impact player. I do wonder if maybe they go to more of a, uh, a split between the two sides because – uh, of how uh, of uh, if they go back to the the eleven personnel and and to where they were most successful against the Steelers, so we'll we'll see what what happens. But I don't have any good answers, and I would just say to avoid, avoid, avoid the Bills' backfield at all costs. Yeah, that, that's really how we were approaching it pretty largely in draft season. That's definitely how we're going to feel about it early on this season. But Devin Singletary still, you know, widely rostered across the fantasy universe, Zach Moss as well. And you've hinted at this a little bit already, the idea of a little bit more balance, even as explosive as this team can be. And we know Brian Dable is not totally going to change his stripes. And why would he, right? But still. 51 pass attempts for Josh Allen in a game that the Bills were leading most of the way, that the Steelers never had anything of a two-possession lead, and you still see Josh Allen throw 51 passes, just 15 running back carries in this game, and it almost felt like the Steelers were totally fine just letting the Bills do what they wanted to do on the ground so long as they weren't giving up anything explosive to especially Stephon Diggs. Do they need a little bit more balance, not only in the personnel that they're doing, but also in the actual plays that get run on the field? I mean, I didn't, I didn't mind that they threw the ball around as much as they did because that's kind of their identity. You alluded to it. I think what, what really kind of was uh, a bit off-putting from what they did in week one compared to what they did all season long last year was the early down play action percentage. I mean, last year they were running it about 40% of the time. And in this past game, they ran it 14%, which was like the fifth lowest rate in the league through the end of Sunday. Um, so th I think that to me is a, an area where even if you just 
have the threat to run, you can make the defender hesitate that much more. And that was part of their magic last season. And I, I do wonder if maybe that's a bit more, you know, in lieu of the balance that we're talking about, because this is not a good run blocking team. This is not a good running team. It's, I mean, their yards before contact was horrible last year. I haven't looked at the week one uh, stats just yet, but I'm assuming it was not great because there was not a lot of push up front against this, against the Steelers front. So I, I think that is a way to kind of, um, talk out of both sides of your your mouth here for, for Brian Dable and and to try and get things accomplished uh, in the passing game while threatening to run. Yeah, thinking about this team going forward, we did see Emmanuel Sanders pick up eight targets in this game. Josh Allen threw it 51 times, but it's a 15.7% target share. Is that a realistic range for him week in and week out? And can this offense, with this sort of balance being a little more pass happy, easily sustain three pass catchers on a week-to-week basis? Yeah, I, honestly, I think it, it could be. I mean, if I don't know that they're necessarily ever going to go back to the, the days of oh, 50 run, 50% run, 50% pass. That's just not who they are. That's not their strength. So, yeah, I do think it's it's possible. And Sanders actually should have led the Bills in receiving in, in the first week. Josh Allen missed him badly on a deep pass that would have resulted in a touchdown he would have uh, he would have been the the leader in receiving yards he was only a yard shy of uh, uh, of Stefan Diggs in total air yards I think Emmanuel Sanders was six in the league in air yards with 149 like all of this different stuff that that leads you to believe that Sanders is going to have a, a breakout game at least at some point um, if if they're gonna th- throw those deep passes and and he is their deep ball receiver. Um, and what I find even more interesting is the splits in in how he's uh, playing and when he's playing as compared to a guy like Gabriel Davis, because those two were kind of like the debate all offseason, right? I mean, Emmanuel Sanders or Gabriel Davis, old versus young, that sort of thing. Well, Sanders outsnapped Davis 79 to 43 um, throughout the entire game. On 11 personnel, three wide receiver sets, Sanders outsnapped Gabriel Davis 36 to 4. So if they go heavy into 11 personnel, like I think they're going to in week two, then I think that's going to be a, a, a lot more lopsided in terms of Sanders and a lot more opportunity. And his average depth of target was like almost 19 yards. I mean, th- this is this is a guy who's who's going to probably have a big game in not too many weeks here. Definitely a spot where he can thrive, found himself with this Buffalo team. Uh, Joe, you've already touched on this a little bit, but uh, you said we were looking ahead to a game with the Dolphins uh, in Miami. Early thoughts on this Week 2 matchup with the Dolphins. Yeah, I, I wonder what they're going to do and how they try to dice up the Dolphins because the last few opponents that they've gone up against, uh, they faced very heavy zone percentages. I think the Steelers were were kind of near the top of the league and, you know, they, they were doing a lot of things to where, you know, they passed off uh, Bill's receivers and and allowed someone else in the zone to, to take up. Um, and that's something that Cole Beasley alluded to after the fact. But the Dolphins are kind of more of a man-based coverage team and the Bills historically have had success against them. So I wonder if that's that's something that uh, that the Bills are going to try to exploit. A lot of intermediate routes, a lot of crossers, the way that they did it last year. I'm sure that's something the Dolphins will be ready for, but uh, that will that would lead itself right into Stefan Diggs, Cole Beasley, and even Sanders is a good crossing route player as well. So I think those uh, all receivers are are ones to watch in this game. I think the Bills could definitely bounce back in a big way this week. 
important game already for these two teams. The Bills sitting at 0-1, the Dolphins at 1-0 with that division win over the Patriots in hand. So an important one for both these teams to go out and get an important one for Bills fantasy managers to see this offense bounce back. That's Joe Buscalia, our Bills beat writer here at The Athletic. Joe, thanks again for being with us on The Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast. Sounds great, guys. Thanks for having me. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, next up on this Beat Writer episode of the Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast, we check in with Matt Schneidman and the Green Bay Packers. Matt, how you doing today? I imagine you're doing a little bit better than the people who play for and coach for the Packers right now. How are you today, Matt? I'm good. I mean, you know, as reporters, we always ask for relevance for the stories to cover, and that was certainly newsworthy, what the Packers did on Sunday. Certainly more newsworthy than if they had won, say, 31-20 or 31-24, something like that. But I was stunned. Um, uh, I do not know how that happened to the Packers. I don't think anybody saw that coming. But the beauty is it's the first game of a 17-game season. Yeah, there you go. I was stunned as well. Really thought, I mean, I thought the Packers were going to, I wouldn't have been shocked if you told me that the result of that game was uh, 38 to three. I would have thought, yeah, that, that makes some sense. I, I could see the Packers blowing the doors off the Saints. Right. Was shocked to see it be the Saints on the winning end of that and the Packers on the receiving end. Uh, we know every time the Packers lose a game early in the season, we like to go back to R-E-L-A-X. Is this just one bad game or is there legitimate cause for concern this early in the season? We'll find out on Monday night against the Lions. Um, you know, once is an anomaly, twice is a problem, three times is a trend. And there were some concerning elements of the game, but there seems to be the sense from who we heard from after the game that, you know, it's just one game. But it's the first game of the season. And the concerning aspect of it is, Aaron Rodgers said, you know, they might have been full of themselves. Matt LaFleur said the Saints were hungrier. All those intangibles that you talk of, like the Packers have been talking all season about their laser focus and how they all understand the magnitude of this season, given everything that happened with Aaron Rodgers and might happen with Aaron Rodgers. Um, And to just come out and lay an egg like that, I mean, Matt LaFleur essentially boasted to us last week that he had 27 players get captain votes and 10 of them had uh, double-digit votes. There was really nobody except for Elton Jenkins, who is not a captain, um, that set an example worth following on, on Sunday. Aaron Rodgers made some really uncharacteristic mistakes, specifically on that second interception he threw. Uh, wide receivers could not get open. They couldn't get a running game going and then abandoned it once they fell behind. And their defense was god-awful in their first game under defensive coordinator Joe Barry. So just all around really, really bad. Yeah, I think there were a, a lot of things that you could take away that were troubling, but I think the most troubling for me, having watched this team a lot over the last 15 years, this is a very typical Packers defense. It looks like the same sort of script, right? If you think the offense is going to get right, it's an offense that's going to have to put 
24 points plus on the board every single week if they're going to win. And I think it's easy to look at their past success and say, yeah, they're going to figure it out offensively. Uh, there were a couple of other weird things, too. I thought the uh, going forward on fourth down in their own territory in the second quarter and not getting it like most times, I think in that situation, the Packers convert there. Instead, they gave the Saints a short field. That was a problem, too. As you looked at this game script, can you draw any meaningful conclusions about the offense, or was it so unusual that you can't draw any meaning from you know target shares and the distribution of, of where things were going on that side of the ball? Yeah, I don't think you can draw anything too meaningful because anytime you fall behind 17 nothing in the second quarter, your game plan is kind of thrown out the window. Um, Matt LaFleur has said far too many times in the past two-plus seasons, I shouldn't have abandoned the run. So if you're a fantasy owner, uh, I'll put it toward that, how much confidence do you have in Aaron Jones being a guy if the Packers fall behind and they're just not going to give him carries? Like A.J. Dillon was the best runner for the Packers on Sunday, and he had four carries for 19 yards. I mean, that's that's not good. And um, as a fantasy owner of Aaron Jones, like myself, <laughs> how does it make you feel if you know that the Packers are just – so averse to running the ball when they face even the slightest adversity. And I thought the Packers offense and talking about the passing game, I thought the, the offensive line was fine in pass protection. It's just a combination of receivers not being able to get open and Rogers making some, some poor decisions. So I wouldn't say there's too much that we can draw in the grand scheme of things that is worth saying, okay, this will be a trend or this will happen. I was confused not confused but surprised that Rodgers said after the game you know Dennis Allen's two-shell defense kind of gave us trouble because that's the exact kind of defense that Joe Barry is supposed to bring to Green Bay from Los Angeles those two high safeties forcing offenses to beat you via the run game and short passes trying to frustrate you by preventing the deep shot and making you kind of dink and dunk your way down the field um the Packers beat that defense in the playoffs last year. They've seen it all training camp on their own practice field, and now they just get totally d destroyed by it. it. It doesn't really add up. Um, so until it happens again, I'm, I'm inclined to think it's just an anomaly. But I'm going to start Aaron Rodgers and Aaron Jones and Marquez Valdez scaling <laughs> again on Monday night against the Lions. And if the same thing happens, then there might be some serious problems. Key name that you just said there, right? No one's really concerned after one bad game about Aaron Rodgers, Aaron Jones, Devontae Adams. Would have liked to see more, of course, but we're not going to sound any alarm bells there. The key name you mentioned, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, right? We heard uh, late in training camp from you and other Packers reporters that it looked like he was the number two receiver for this team and got a 20% target share in this game. And sure, the, the brand of targets, things like that, maybe change when you are falling behind 17-0, but the 20% share, you know, the number is the number. There uh, is this something that MVS can sit on most weeks? Can he be a guy who gets one fifth of the looks in the passing game week in and week out? I think so. Um, he has become a more complete receiver, and and I'm not even talking about Sunday's game. You know, wide receivers coach Jason Vrabel was telling us late in camp that MVS has, you know, he has a much better understanding that you can't just run straight into space that you see and hope to get open. He's MVS is one of the fastest players in the league. Um, and, you know, he's been primarily, as you guys know, a deep ball threat. But what Vrabel is saying is that instead of just running straight into space in the middle of the field, MVS is better at setting up a cornerback 
to follow him one way and then running into space. And he has a better understanding of timing and creating space for Aaron Rodgers in that, you know, second tier of the field instead of just the deep route. So he's become a far more complete receiver. You know, we know he can run by anybody and, and catch that 70 yard touchdown. The typical MVS stat line in past years, if he has a good game, is like four catches for 110 yards and a touchdown. I think we could see more of, you know, six catches for 85 yards and two touchdowns this year. And his hands have gotten much better. I know he kind of dropped a really contest. I don't even know if you could call it a drop, but a really contested catch in the red zone for a, a, what would have been a really short game on, on Sunday. Jesus, my desk almost fell over. But um, <laughs> Very fitting of the Packers. It's like their entire desk yeah, fell exactly. over against the Saints. <laughs> so, so I saw True Media had a good stat. There were 153 players with at least 30 catches last year. Valdez Scantling ranked number 151 in terms of uh, catch-to-drop ratio. He had 33 catches and seven drops last year. He only dropped, I think, one pass in training camp. Um, had a really good training camp hands-wise. And that, combined with that better understanding of those intermediate routes, I think he is definitely a guy that you can rely on as a solid number two wide receiver for the Packers this year. Yeah, it seemed like the trust was up a little bit on another fourth and one in this game. They went to MVS on a short pass play. I was like, hey, wow, like that's that's not usually part of the script. I think that means they, they feel a little better about how he's been uh, just protecting the ball and making catches going back to training camp, as he said. What's the biggest thing that needs to change as the Packers prepare for this matchup against the Lions? I mean, if you're in the room, you're calling the shots. What's the first thing you're trying to fix for week two? They got to find ways to get their receivers open and, and scheme them open if the Lions do the same thing. You know, Rogers said after the game, maybe he was joking, maybe he wasn't, but like, the blueprint on how to stop the Packers is out. And, and listen, two years ago, the Packers laid a stinker in Los Angeles against the Chargers. The Chargers had a terrible record at the time. I believe it was week 11. They lost 26 to 11. Last year, they laid a stinker against the Buccaneers in week six. Uh, were blown out, and the Packers came into that game undefeated. They're going to have these games. Yes, it's a little more concerning since it happened week one, especially on the offensive side since you know they were – the number one scoring offense in the regular season last year. But as I've said, I tend to think it's more of an anomaly until it becomes not one. Um, I think LaFleur has to find a way to scheme open his, his top receivers. Even Devontae Adams couldn't get much space, and he's, you could say, the best route runner in the league. Um, you got to get Robert Tunyon the ball more. You got to get Aaron Jones the ball more in the passing game. And it's yes. tough when you go – I think the stat was two of seven Rodgers. Rodgers was quarterback for seven drives before Jordan Love came in and had a couple drives. Only two of those drives lasted longer than six plays. So the offensive snaps were down because the offense just couldn't stay on the field and because the Saints were running 15-play drives. So the plays were down, but I expect against the Lions um, that there will be a lot more uh, of getting receivers open. And Jeff Okuda won't be playing. I don't know how much that matters because Ken Crawley, uh, the Saints number two cornerback, wasn't playing and the Packers couldn't take advantage. And Marshawn Lattimore was was limited and kind of banged up and, and they couldn't take advantage. So I don't know how much to read into that. But I, I would be confident about the Packers receivers this week and I would expect 
uh, Aaron Rodgers and company to bounce back. Among the teams with some uncharacteristic struggles, unexpected struggles in week one, the Packers probably have the softest landing spot in week two getting home and taking on the Lions. That's Matt Schneidman, our Packers beat writer here at The Athletic. Matt, thanks again for being with us on the Fantasy Football Pod. Thanks, guys, for having me. Always a pleasure. Finally, on this week one misfit episode of The Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast, beat writer edition, we bring on Joe Rexroad to talk Tennessee Titans, another one of these teams that really let down fantasy managers in week one. Joe, how you doing today? I'm good. Thanks for having me, guys. I mean, I, I almost feel guilty right now. Like, I feel like I owe apologies all around for, for uh, what, what this team did on Sunday. Boy, was it ugly. Yeah, it certainly was. And juxtaposed against what we saw from Arizona's offense made it look that much uglier. We had uh, Joe Buscalia from the Bills on before you. We had Matt Schneidman from the Packers on before you. Put this same question to them. We're going to put it to you here. Is this just an anomalous bad game for the Titans, or were there real cause for concern with what we saw on Sunday? I think it's more an anomaly. I mean, I think so. You have to think so. I think probably the biggest um, surprise and thing I don't think will continue is that the offensive line was atrocious. And you have to keep a few things in mind. First of all, the, the two most talented offensive linemen the Titans have are left tackle Taylor Lewan, first game back from a torn ACL last season, and then right guard Nate Davis, who uh, missed a lot of camp with an injury and then was on the COVID list for 10 days and came in with like basically a one full day of practice last week. And by the way, Ben Jones, the center who plays next to him, uh, same deal. Now, he's a veteran. He's the leader of the line, but also an injury. Missed most of camp. Also COVID. Uh, exactly the same time as Davis. And by the way, those guys at times looked like they just wanted J.J. Watt to go in the backfield. Um, so, and, we and then, you know, of course, Lawan helps Chandler Jones uh, be on pace for 85 sacks this season. So, <laughs> I mean, when you can't block to that extent, it's just going to be ugly. And I still think this could be a very good offensive line. So um, I think that's the big thing that we should see change. And then also I think Ryan Tannehill's connection with Julio Jones, well-documented. There was not a lot of time together, and it looked like it Sunday. Yeah, Julio, I mean, just uh, three catches for 29 yards on six targets. Also had a, a personal foul penalty that uh, Mike Vrabel was, I would say, nonplussed about. He was pretty <laughs> pretty furious there. But the uh, what do you think the situation is with Julio in future weeks? I mean, do you think the, this is a case of rust maybe, or do you think there's actually some reason to be concerned? Well, I think, you know, I think the, the good thing about what I saw Sunday was he looked healthy and fast to me. Um, they couldn't take a deep shot. I mean, you, they could not set up in the pocket. They couldn't sustain drives. I thought it was a very bad day for new offensive coordinator Todd Downing. And as as many Raiders fans have have reminded me again, he did not have a good year in his one year previously as OC. So that's one of the concerns, I think. But with Julio, look, he had one drop that you can't have. Like he got targeted six times. A couple other – he had a couple others that were, were right there. And I think that looked a little bit like a quarterback and receiver, maybe not quite honed together. Um, but I think he's uh, the way he ran and everything and the way he's kind of run around, like now that he's been back to practice, I still think there's a big season in there. And I think there's a big season for A.J. Brown as well. I mean, hey, Roger Saffold, left guard, said this is this is our mulligan. And, the, and you know, there are 16 games left. So this is like the fourth preseason game. 
Yeah, you know, there's really no one's going to be too concerned after one bad game for Julio Jones. No one's going to be concerned about Derrick Henry. And he still got 17 carries, didn't really give up any carries to any other running backs. A.J. Brown got his touchdown, got eight targets. We would expect this team to be uh, the more efficient standard that we've seen ever since Ryan Tannehill took over as the starter halfway through the 2019 season. So good reason to believe that the offense bounces back, especially from a fantasy perspective. The one thing that caught my eye, especially perusing the box score, and even during the game, this was a you know a game I caught a good chunk of on Sunday, was the involvement of Chester Rogers in this one. What played a much bigger role than I expected him to off the bat. Got six targets, caught four of them for 62 yards. Is he going to be a thing in this offense this season? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd be hesitant there because Marcus Johnson, to me, had a better camp than him. Both of those are surprise guys who, when camp started – I wouldn't have, <clears throat> excuse me, I would not have picked them to, to make the active roster because I, well, for one, would have figured the fourth round pick would make the active roster, Des Fitzpatrick. But Chester Rogers, that is definitely in part because Marcus Johnson's banged up and, of course, because Josh Reynolds is banged up. He's on the active roster, but he was inactive. He's, I mean, look, it's never comforting to hear, quote, Achilles stuff, as, <laughs> as he talked about a couple weeks ago. But I think... I mean, at, at this point, he's out there, too. He's practicing. I think he'll be back in there. And I think Marcus Johnson, when they're both back, I, I don't know. I do. I will say that with Chester Rogers is more of the traditional slot guy, and they have gone with the traditional slot guy when they've been able to in recent years. Adam Humphrey certainly was brought in. They paid him well to be the slot receiver. They kind of downplayed the importance of, of having that dedicated position. And, you know, I think A.J. Brown's going to be in there a lot. So I, I guess if they find it important to have a slot guy, Chester Rogers fits that bill. But I still think Johnson and Reynolds, if healthy, are more likely to be in there and get and get targeted than him. Given that sort of battle and you know, the use of tight ends on this team, if you had to bank on a third pass catcher behind A.J. Brown and Julio Jones to be at least somewhat fantasy relevant. Would you be more inclined to go with someone like Anthony Ferkser as a, a deep league tight end option instead of trying to chasing the, the third receiver here? Yes, absolutely. And it wasn't a great day for Ferkser. I mean, again, it wasn't a great day for anyone. In fact, I mean, Tannehill missed Ferkser a couple times, I thought, when he could have made plays. But normally they have great chemistry. I think he'll be utilizing the red zone. I think he'll have his best year. I think he's more of a sure thing because, like I said, I think Johnson and Reynolds would be ahead of Rodgers. It could go a lot of different ways. I would definitely feel better about Ferkser than any of those guys. Let's take a quick look ahead to what this team has in Week 2. And what they have in Week 2 is a really tough matchup with the Seattle Seahawks, a team that played exactly to script in their win over the Colts in Week 1. Give us some early thoughts on this Week 2 matchup with Seattle. Well, you saw Seattle do to Indy what Arizona did to the Titans up front, largely. I mean, they really just handled what's supposed to be a really good offensive line. So to me, it's it comes down to one, are the Titans a full week of practice for this offensive line? Lawan's all angry and tweeting, insulting himself. And is, are they going to come back and play better? Are they going to be physical? And, and is Todd Downing going to have a better plan? I mean, I'm sorry, but like first down runs – for minus one, minus two, one yard, and four straight possessions, Derrick Henry, you got to mix that up a little bit. And I thought, you know, I just feel like, and you saw it a little bit as the game opened up, granted, but getting the ball out quickly to A.J. Brown, I think they need to do that to Julio Jones as well. I mean, those are two guys you just want them with any kind of space with the ball in their hands. And I think you can, 
you know, you can pass to run a little bit in this game. So it's a huge week for Todd Downing, this offensive line. Um, I do think there are plays. I mean, I think there's a big day for Derrick Henry to be had if, if the offense operates and functions as it's built to do. Yeah, Arthur Smith and this Tennessee offense uh, better paired together at least than they were both in week one. Smith and the Atlanta Falcons having their struggles as well. That is Joe Rex Road covering really all Nashville sports and certainly the Titans for us here at The Athletic. Joe, thanks again for being with us on the Fantasy Football Pod. All right, guys. Thanks a lot for having me. All right, DVR and I are going to wrap up this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast by taking a look at the waiver wire. And that's what we're going to do every Tuesday. Obviously, DVR and I talk about this on Sunday evening, and then me, Jake, and Brandon get into it in the fuller picture on Monday. But now we have another 24 hours worth of information to make our bid. So we're going to go ahead and put a capper on the waiver discussion here. And those 24 hours were very important because yes, on yesterday's episode, me, Jake, and Brandon were all saying, yeah... We like Elijah Mitchell. He's probably the top guy to go after, but we're maybe not breaking the bank for him just yet. And then, I mean, it was like 10 minutes after we finished recording DVR, we get the word on Raheem Mostert that he's going to be out for eight weeks with that knee injury. So we asked the question again, are we breaking the bank for Elijah Mitchell? I think it's going to depend a little bit on the situation you have on your rosters. If you are chasing a clear like RB2 play, on a week-to-week basis, or especially if you're light at running back and just need someone you can use in the flex spot for these next couple of weeks, then you can be more aggressive with Mitchell. I think the reasons you still want to be a little bit cautious are that this is a San Francisco team that runs the ball well, but loves to mix and match personnel. And I think as we've learned over the last 48 hours, we've seen the snap counts come in, Jamichael Hasty and Elijah Mitchell play special teams. I think that's a big part of why Trey Sermon was inactive in week one. Obviously, Trey Sermon's going to have some sort of role. He'll be active for week two. If it's a 60-40 split or 70-30 split favoring Mitchell, it wouldn't be stunning because Mitchell looked really good with the opportunity against the Lions. And I think if you look at Mitchell as a burner, a guy that had a a 4-3-3-40 coming out of the University of Louisiana, he does have a lot of similarities to Raheem Mostert. So if you think about how they would use Mostert in most matchups, that might give us some idea of what Mitchell's workload is going to look like. But then he's less proven than Mostert at this level. So you have to kind of factor that in as well. I think I was closer to the keep him honest, you know, five to 8% range when we first talked about Mitchell on Sunday night. I think I'm more in the 10 to 12 range at this point, unless I'm in the situation that I described up top where I'm just desperate at running back. I lost JK Dobbins and didn't get Tyson Williams or whatever that scenario actually is. In those scenarios, maybe you go 15 to 20%, but this isn't an all in scenario because We know Kyle Shanahan and the San Francisco offense are almost certainly going to mix and match running backs. Yeah, I'm a little bit more bullish here because I do think that he can pretty easily step right into the Raheem Mostert role. And maybe he will give up some of those um, some of those special team snaps. Maybe he won't. But I think that. You know, he's going to do something along the lines of what he did in week one. And Trey Sermon obviously is going to be active in week two, and Trey Sermon could be the lead in week two. But I think that there's a role to be played for Elijah Mitchell all season long. As you said, we know that Kyle Shanahan wants to use more than one back. He just doesn't want to have only one guy back there. And I don't think we have any reason to think it's anyone other than Elijah Mitchell, who is part of that one-two rotation 
with Trey Sermon now. So I don't have Raheem Mostert level expectations for him because as you said, he just hasn't done it the way that Raheem Mostert has in back-to-back seasons at the NFL level, but he looked the part in week one, 19 carries, 104 yards and a touchdown. If Raheem Mostert put up those stats, we would say, yep, that's why Raheem Mostert's the number one guy here as excited as we are for Trey Sermon. And Mitchell put up those stats. You can't take that away from him. So I'm more in probably the 20 to 25% range for him and would go maybe even up to 30 or 35 if I were desperate for a running back. I think the important thing to keep in mind is that even that might not get it done. You got a lot of people who are going to play for right now, and Elijah Mitchell is looking like a big, blinking RB2 light for people who really need it. So I think there's going to be someone who meets that desperation threshold in every league DVR. And if you really want Elijah Mitchell, obviously, I'm going to caveat this by saying that know your league. You know, you know how your league bids better than we do. We are not in that league with you, especially if it's a long-standing league. You should have a good handle on how aggressive people are early in the season. But I wouldn't be surprised if the average winning bid for Elijah Mitchell was more in the 40% range. So I think that's sort of where your mind needs to be, 30 to 40%. If you really want to come away with him, if you're just trying to keep people honest, then sure, go beneath that. But if you really want to come away with Elijah Mitchell, I think 30% of your fab is what you need to be planning on spending to get him. I'll say that the next back that we're going to talk about here is someone who, the more I've thought about it at DVR, I'm really just not interested. This is a min-bid situation for me because I just don't think the case for Mark Ingram passes the smell test here. Uh, the one thing you can say for him is that he dominated carries in a way that I didn't think he would. I thought it would be a lot more Philip Lindsay involved, and so we have to take that at face value after one week and assume that he is the primary runner for Houston. But he needed 26 carries to get 85 yards. And how often is Houston going to be able to give this sort of carry share to its backfield? It's just not going to happen very often. I'm very, very happy to let someone else win Mark Ingram. Yeah, and I think if you look at the way he's been used in passing situations the last few seasons, that gives you some fear that on a team that will often be trailing, he might not see the field as much as he saw it in week one in any other game for the rest of the season. And I realize I'm lower on the Texans even than most people. So maybe I'm going a little too far, but that was an inefficient, good fantasy day for Ingram. I still think Philip Lindsay is probably the better runner of those two players at this stage of their respective careers. And I think Lindsay's the guy that's going to be a little more involved as a pass catcher. Obviously, we saw David Johnson handle that function capably earlier in his career. So I think there are two backs right there that can take the catch-up role and ultimately keep Ingram more in that 15-touch range most weeks. So I actually do like Mitchell more than Ingram. Ingram, I think, is still worth bidding on if you're in a need-another-running-back situation. But yeah, I, th- I think it's a 5 to 8% range at the most for him because this is a bad team that often will not have a lead. Ingram, for me, is a, is a total desperation play. That's really the only spots I'm bidding on him. And I can give you an example from, from one of my own teams. It's a deeper format. Uh, Raheem Mostert is on that team. I speculated a little bit on some Jets plays with Tevin Coleman and Ty Johnson. That's a team that could use a back end and maybe things go right running back. And so in that sort of situation, I'm placing a low bid on Mark Ingram. And, you know, maybe they proved me wrong. Maybe the Texans are a little bit better than we think. Maybe he does own the backfield in a way that we didn't expect going into the season. And so I'll take that shot. But it is that sort of situation where I'm really looking at Mark Ingram with something along the lines of a, I don't know, three, four, five percent bid. I just can't get too excited because of all the things that we know circumstantially and environmentally are going to work against Mark Ingram. Uh, Christian Kirk, to me, is a really interesting guy at DVR because of Arizona's offense. We talked about it already a couple of times. 
five catches, five targets, 70 yards, and two touchdowns. And he got used less than A.J. Green. And so that has me tempering my bids a little bit. But he did a lot with his opportunity. A.J. Green didn't. And so while I would say that if the opportunity stays the same, Christian Kirk's not going to give you that top-end bid value the remainder of the season, I think we need to bake in here some possibility that the opportunity doesn't remain the same and A.J. Green is cooked and that we see Christian Kirk get the sort of A.J. Green snap share uh, or the snap share that Green had in week one, and that could really make him more interesting. Yeah, I almost look at the Kirk situation similar to Michael Gallup in Dallas, but the key difference is there's one elite receiver in Arizona in DeAndre Hopkins. Dallas might have two between CeeDee Lamb and Amari Cooper. So Mm -hmm. I think being even the third guy in the passing game in Arizona is a better spot to be in. Volume should be there most weeks. I think they only threw it 32 times against the Titans because they had a huge lead. More often than not, this Arizona team is probably going to attempt 40 passes each week. So I think that bodes well for a guy like Kirk as well. They use a lot of three and four wide receiver sets. And I don't know if they're necessarily going to run the ball all that effectively. You know, I think Chase Edmonds is a good 15 to 18 touch guy. James Conner as a complimentary piece, maybe that works out. But I think they're going to lean more pass than run as the season goes on. And Kirk's going to be one of the guys that benefits from that. Definitely. And even if in a worst case scenario where he really is just an 11 personnel sort of guy, they're going to do a lot of 11. They're going to do a lot of 10. That's why we wanted shots at Rondale Moore back in draft season. And you saw Rondale Moore was really only in on 10, 20 snaps, but he got five targets and turned that into four catches for 68 yards. There's a lot of explosion in this passing game. Not all passing game situations are created equal. 11 personnel is, you know, maybe a doomsday scenario for uh, someone on the Titans. Like we were talking about earlier with Joe Rexroad, but the 11 personnel usage for Arizona looks a whole lot different than it does for other teams. So even if that's Christian Kirk's fate, there's going to be some value in that the remainder of the season. Let's look at some other uh, wide receivers here. Tim Patrick, KJ Hamler, they're on our radar because of the Jerry Judy injury. Zach Paschal got in the end zone a couple of times for the Colts. You want to make an argument for any of those guys, DVR? I still think it's Hamler because of his big playability. I think the Colts depth chart is just such a mess that I think it could be up and down behind Michael Pittman Jr. each and every week. So um, Paschal's just more of a, a conditional bottom of my list bid if I'm chasing wide receivers. The thing that makes Tim Patrick so interesting is that he's been very efficient when given opportunities in the past and as you mentioned I think on the Sunday night show he plays outside like he's the guy that takes the Jerry Judy role directly so I mean I think both Hamler and Patrick get a bump but I still expect to see more Cortland Sutton so I see these guys as secondary options behind the likes of Kirk and if Emmanuel Sanders is out there in your league I'd put Sanders even ahead of Christian Kirk for what it's worth in some of those shallow leagues because I think the Beasley Emmanuel Sanders target distribution, I think that's going to flip. I actually think Sanders is going to be the clear number two most weeks in Buffalo. Just throwing that out there for the handful of leagues where Sanders might be available. Patrick and Hamler are probably going to drive us crazy these next few weeks as guys that are more involved, but not necessarily involved consistently enough to make a big fantasy impact. Important real-life players for the Broncos. As far as fantasy guys go, they're really back-end of your roster guys. Guys who I would place bids on, not going crazy for either of them, and I'm probably taking a pass on Zach Paschal. I just think that 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 Colts passing game, like, really had to work incredibly hard to get 251 yards passing and 6.6 yards per attempt out of Carson Wentz. They had to work their asses off to get to even that incredibly modest level. And it's really the touchdowns that we're talking about with Pascal, four catches, 43 yards. So I'm probably 
taking a pass on that. Any other running backs that you're taking a shot on? I think if I were going to, it's probably Kenny Gainwell who's at the top of the list for me. It just seemed like he had that Boston Scott role, the role that we expected Boston Scott to have. seemed like Gainwell had it for Philly, and we've seen, whether it's Boston Scott, whether it's Darren Sproles, whether it's Corey Clement, we've seen guys turn that into low-end flex value uh, in half PPR and full PPR leagues. So I think Gainwell can do that. Other than that, I'm probably not really making any sort of aggressive or even uh, modest bid on any running backs this week. Yeah, I think the one name that might be available in some of the more shallow leagues out there, if you're just trying to shuffle backups on your bench, Tony Jones looks like the clear-cut backup for the Saints. That was pretty obvious once Latavius Murray was cut, but I thought he looked good on his carries. I know it was a blowout situation, so volume-wise, we can't expect him to get that many touches week in and week out, but I think he's moved up the list of the backup running backs that you want to stash away in the event that the starter goes down. I don't think anyone can handle all the Elvin Kamara functions, but I think Jones clearly is the new Latavius Murray. And you think about the way Murray has been treated over the years. I think that's obviously a player that you want to roster if possible. On our way out the door, I will just talk about a couple of tight ends that I think you can find because there is tight end help out there. The first is Cole Komet. I think Cole Komet can really be a week in week out starter. We saw no doubt about it. He is the primary tight end in Chicago. He played more than 50 snaps in their loss to the Rams. Jimmy Graham played fewer than 15 snaps in the loss and really was only out there when the Bears got in the red zone. They're still going to go to him in the red zone. He can still be a red zone weapon. We saw that from Jimmy Graham last year. He actually had a big catch plan, you know, box out rebounder in the game against the Rams. He can still do that. But between the 20s, it is the Cole Komet show. Seven targets, caught five of them for 42 yards. I think he's someone who not only do you like for this week uh, with the Bears playing the Bengals, but someone who can be a weekend and week out starter. Then I'll throw James O'Shaughnessy out there too, DVR. He had eight targets for the Jaguars, caught six of them uh, in that game in what was a really ugly loss to the Texans, but still six receptions for 48 yards. Uh, seems like he's going to have a role in that passing game. You might not see Trevor Lawrence chuck it up 51 times every game, but as bad as they looked, you might see him chuck it up 40 times every game, something like that. So you like seeing that target share for O'Shaughnessy. You look at Komet and O'Shaughnessy, is there a preference for you between those guys? I think probably the two best tight ends to chase on the waiver wire. I think it's Komet because there's a chance he's the number two pass catcher in the offense. I mean, that's easily a possibility. I, I, Darnell Mooney is a, a nice role player, but Komet might actually be a little more of a big play threat over the course of this year. He's a mismatch at tight end. So Komet is the clear option for me. I'm a little worried about the upcoming schedule for James O'Shaughnessy. I think the appeal there is probably limited more to two tight end leagues or at least tight end bonus sorts of leagues. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast. You see going along the bottom of the screen if you're watching us on YouTube. And you can hear in your ears if you're listening to the podcast. Go to theathletic.com slash fantasyfootballpod. If you are not a subscriber, you'll get 50% off your first year at The Athletic. That's going to do it, as I said, for this episode. This show returns on Wednesday. Nando DeFino, Chris Vaccaro, and Brandon Marianne Lee bringing their brand of craziness to The Athletic Fantasy Football Podcast. For DVR and our beat writers, Joe Buscalia, Joe Rexroad, and Matt Schneidman, I am Michael Beller. Thanks for joining with us. We'll talk to you all soon.